when the USA's founding fathers sat to define the Bill of Rights and enshrine into the Constitution the inalienable right to freedom of speech, they had little idea that over two centuries later, the country would still be wrangling about what this meant on social media. The tech industry is an American success story. The products we build have changed the world and improved people's lives. Our industry is one of the ways that America shares its values with the world and one of our greatest economic and cultural exports. Facebook is part of this story. That was Facebook CEO and founder Mark Zuckerberg testifying before U.S. Congress in July of 2020. Zuckerberg was called to address concerns about how Facebook's platform is being used as social media companies face increased scrutiny about the power and influence of their platforms. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Cody Combs, and this week, with the U.S. presidential election fast approaching, we're looking at how social media giants are grappling with freedom of speech. Free speech is part of the U.S. Bill of Rights, which was ratified in 1791. It grants the freedom to express any opinion without restrictions or penalty from the government. However, there are restrictions to this right in law. These include speech that incites violence, is part of criminal conduct, or commercial advertising. So how have social media companies become so central in discussions around this issue? Few companies have experienced the rapid rise and sudden fall in public trust, like the social media giants that have come to define the post-industrial economies around the world. In the early days of social media, platforms like Facebook and Twitter enjoyed an altruistic existence that soared with lofty goals of bringing people closer together. Matthew Ingram is chief digital writer for Columbia Journalism Review. He's been writing about business and technology for close to two decades. Probably for the first, you know, 10, 15 years of their lives, social networks, whether it's YouTube or Twitter or Facebook, were kind of seen as you know, these new things that were great and lots of people were using them and and things like, for example, the Arab Spring, you know, there was a lot of potential that people saw in social media to help people organize and kind of take action, group action, all of which is true. And unfortunately, the last four years in particular, we've seen all the negative aspects of that ability The Cambridge Analytica controversy, which was thrust into the spotlight in 2018 after whistleblower Christopher Wiley claimed the data of millions of Facebook users was compromised. Data mining company Cambridge Analytica harvested information of up to 50 million Facebook users without their consent in order to influence voters in political campaigns, including the 2016 U.S. presidential election. U.S. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin confronted Zuckerberg about Facebook's failure to stop Cambridge Analytica in the lead-up to the 2016 election, paraphrasing Wiley. He goes on to describe the remarkable success of this campaign, uh, both electorally but also politically in the country in terms of sowing the terrible racial and ethnic divisions that you see in America today. So they waged a mass campaign of psychological warfare to polarize America around race and religion and to activate racists and anti-Semites. And it worked splendidly for them, but it didn't work so well for America. So Mr. Zuckerberg, which parts of this narrative have you addressed or are you planning to address 
Or do you just see that essentially as the cost of being a forum in a marketplace for ideas? Is there nothing that can be done about the use of Facebook to uh, engender social division in America? Since 2016, uh, there have been a, a lot of steps that we've taken to protect the integrity of elections. We've hired, I think it's more than 30,000 people to work on safety and security. Uh, we've built up AI systems to be able to find harmful content, um, including being able to find more than 50 uh, different networks of coordinated and authentic behavior. Ingram feels compared to Facebook, Twitter seems to have taken a different approach to policing its platform. So one of the big ones was they decided not to have political advertising. Um, so they were the first to kind of say, we're just not doing that. We're Because there's so much disinformation involved, Facebook has continued to allow that, which is a huge sort of red flag for some people. Um, Twitter also uh, has started blocking accounts un from tweeting until they remove things. So Donald Trump Jr., for example, um, they blocked that account's ability to tweet until it removed this uh, conspiracy theory video about COVID. In the lead-up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election, there are ample allegations that social platforms are being used to spread fake news, conspiracy theories, and even incite attacks in parts of the world. According to a 2020 Facebook report, since 2017, the company has removed what it describes as more than 100 networks worldwide, which were engaging in coordinated, inauthentic behavior. Facebook said several networks they took down were linked to the Russian Internet Research Agency. In total, the company found and removed about a dozen deceptive campaigns connected to individuals associated with it. In the report, Facebook went on to explain the Russian-linked campaign tricked unwitting freelance journalists into writing stories on its behalf. Despite all this, people are increasingly getting their news from social media. In 2019, the Pew Research Center found over half of U.S. users got their news from the platforms, but there's also a high level of distrust. Another Pew report found 59% of users did not trust Facebook as a source of political news, and 48% did not trust Twitter. Ingram says souring public sentiment has prompted Facebook, Twitter, and others to take stronger approaches to preventing the platforms from being misused. No brand wants to be associated with a lack of public trust. I mean, I think they're, they're doing a lot more than they did in 2016, for sure, because in 2016, I think it was still, you know, it wasn't clear that disinformation on those platforms was going to be a significant problem. And so I think four years later, it's pretty well recognized that bots and foreign agents and just general, you know, disinfo types will take control of accounts on these platforms. And we, we may not be able to say for sure that that caused a specific election result, but for, these companies definitely know and are paying attention to it. So they're taking steps. Whether those steps will actually help or not is a, is a big question. As companies, social media platforms do not have to enforce free speech, but many feel that they should. In 2018, the American Bar Association published an article advocating to expand the First Amendment beyond government to cover social media platforms due to the power these companies hold. In the U.S., both Democratic and Republican parties agree that big tech poses problems, but for very different reasons. 
This makes legislating policy very difficult as two sides have different solutions to different problems. Dr. Peter Yakabuchi, an associate professor of political science at Buffalo State University, explains. Well, the Republicans are much more have been very successful in creating the boogeyman, the evil, the other. Especially with, for Trump, these are the elites, these are the rich trying to control your lives. And now they're limiting how you can talk to each other. And that's it's a very effective argument. It's, it's a really effective political argument. On the left, they see these social media companies as turning a blind eye to promotion of uh, falsehoods, promotion of negative hate speech. On the right, they, they have created this argument that these companies, if they restrict it all, are coming to restrict us. And so it's an effective argument on both sides. I think it's more effective for the Republicans. Between 2016 and now, both Facebook and Twitter have banned users from their platforms. In 2018, Twitter banned a number of far-right accounts. Radio host and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, commentator Milo Yiannopoulos, and activist Laura Loomer among them, all with hundreds of thousands of followers each. In 2019, Facebook followed suit. The Republican sentiment of being unfairly restricted by social media is expressed here by Republican U.S. House Representative Jim Jordan. I'll just cut to the chase. Big tech's out to get conservatives. That's not a suspicion. That's not a hunch. That's a fact. Facebook, June 19th, 2020, takes down posts from President Trump's re-election campaign. November 1st, 2018, Facebook silences a pro-life organization's advertisement. May 19th, 2016, Facebook, former Facebook employees admit Facebook routinely suppresses conservative views. And I haven't even mentioned Twitter, who we actually invited, Mr. Chairman. We asked for you guys to invite them as one of our witnesses. You guys said, no, I haven't even mentioned them two years ago. They shadow banned two members of this committee. The hundred percent of only four get shadow banned. And of course, what did Mr. Dorsey tell us? He said, oh, it was just a glitch in our algorithm. Just a gl- I asked him, what, what'd you put in the algorithm? I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I heard it was just a glitch, I wouldn't be as wealthy as our witnesses, but I'd be doing all right. But the issue with trying to police free speech on the internet is that there are always other options, other websites, and other social media platforms for users to go to. As these figures looked for an alternative home, after a brief unsuccessful fling with Telegram, they found Parler, a new social media platform that wanted to offer users free speech alternatives to Twitter and Facebook. This became a beacon of hope for the right. In 2020, after Twitter flagged some of Donald Trump's tweets for violating the platform's policies against abusive behavior, promoting violence, or for making false claims, the president and many of his fellow Republicans joined Parler. Although the platform intended to be the home of free speech, its users skewed so much to the right that the founder and CEO, John Matz, openly offered liberal personalities with 50,000 followers on Twitter or Facebook a $20,000 incentive to start a Parler account. In October 2019, Facebook announced it would not censor politicians or news in democracies, including political advertisements that contain falsehoods. The decision received criticism. Actor and comedian Sasha Baron Cohen, during a speech of the Anti-Defamation League, said, if Facebook were around in the 1930s, it would have allowed Hitler to post 30-second ads on his solution to the Jewish problem. Facebook's aim of being impartial and uninvolved in these issues of free speech have drawn scrutiny from the highest levels of government. 
But a news release from the company in 2019 said, quote, We've removed multiple pages, groups, and accounts for misleading people about who they are and what they're doing. Most recently, Facebook, like Twitter, has also decided to delete content from U.S. President Donald Trump's re-election campaign after the campaign made various posts that incorrectly claimed children were almost immune to COVID-19. But Dr. Peter Yagabuji does not think these changes are substantial enough. I, I think they're, they're face-saving changes. I mean, they're not significant changes. I mean, for example, from what I understand that Twitter and Facebook are doing, and we don't know exactly what they're doing. They're, they're not public companies, so they're not releasing everything they're doing. Um, they're largely fact-checking, um, and in a rare, rare occurrence, they may limit someone's access to their site for a day, possibly. But that, you know, all that does is drum up attention to that person. Um, and it, it kind of, you know what it kind of reminds me of? This is probably too old for you. Do you remember when Tipper Gore went on her rant and raving about rock music? The more attention they gave to Dee Snyder and Twisted Sister, the more records they sold. If you ban Don Jr. or whomever for a day, everybody the next day is going to say, oh, what did Don Jr. say about being banned for a day? And he gets 10,000, 20,000 more followers. But Facebook did make a change to its policy regarding political advertising announcing it would put a stop to advertising on the platform, but it would wait until just one week before the election in November to do so. Some say that's far too long of a wait, and therefore could leave the platform vulnerable to the spread of misinformation. The topic of political ads was a major sticking point during Zuckerberg's testimony while he was being questioned by U.S. Democratic Congressman David Cicilline, chairman of the Antitrust Subcommittee. Mr. Zuckerberg, if a television station runs a false political advertisement, they're held liable for that. Why should Facebook or any other platform be different? While you may not be a publisher, you're responsible maybe not for the first posting, but you then take that posting and you apply a set of algorithms, which is a business decision. Uh, Congressman, in terms of political ads, we've modeled a lot of our policies off of the FCC guidelines on broadcasters um, and their requirements to run political ads uh, equally from, from, from all different sides. I, I think these examples, unfortunately, Mr. Zuckerberg, are just the tip of the iceberg. This back-and-forth exchange between Cicilline and Zuckerberg is a perfect example of just how complicated the debates about social media platforms have become. Facebook, Twitter, and other platforms purporting to exemplify the virtues of free speech are also being tasked with trying to stop the spread of misinformation. And there's no precedent guiding the way. Dr. Peter Iacobucci is also an expert on constitutional law, having studied the U.S. Supreme Court for more than 25 years. We're trying to adopt an old constitutional doctrine that's been around for 100 years to a new technological situation that it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Iacobucci is referring to the First Amendment, in particular the portion inferring that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people to peaceably assemble. We're trying to morph a First Amendment free speech law that was developed when it was newspapers and people shouting at each other in a town hall situation to an online situation. It's different. The famous statement from Louise Brandeis back in the 1920s was, look, if you don't like someone's speech, you should counter it with more speech and defeat their argument, the sort of marketplace of ideas. That doesn't work in social media. In fact, Zuckerberg has paraphrased Brandeis on several occasions, 
most recently posting to Facebook, quote, I generally believe the best antidote to bad speech is more speech. But Yakabuchi warns even if strict action is taken on social media platforms across the board to limit fake news and illegitimate actors, that still won't address other problems that are created by these personalized news feeds. As that accumulates over time, you see society splintering out into protected enclaves of thought where I don't even know what they're talking about. I don't have any idea what their issues are. Every indication in polling that we see, at least here in the United States, is that's accelerating. It's not, it's not decelerating. It's accelerating faster and faster where we're being split apart, and it makes it impossible for a democracy to work. You simply, if you're not even on the same playing field, you can't come to a compromise if you can't even speak to each other. And Dr. Yakabuchi warns the U.S. Supreme Court does not appear eager to wade into social media free speech debates anytime soon. Chief Justice Roberts, Yakabuchi says, has been very careful to protect the Supreme Court from day-to-day political fights. Yakabuchi adds there's simply too little consensus as to what should be done regarding social media, and that, combined with the breakneck pace of technology, makes it very difficult to tackle. It's not just political. They don't have an answer. Like, it, there isn't a good answer out there. You can read hundreds of law journal articles on what we should do. There's no consensus. There's no clear, we should do this, we should do that. And with people rallying behind it, there's just random thoughts on how to fix the system. And so until there is some type of consensus around this issue, what we should do with political speech and social media platforms, I don't think you're going to see the court really take a major step at all. This lack of consensus leaves a void for big tech to regulate itself. Tech writer Matthew Ingram says not even those in charge of these tech giants seem certain about the power and potential influence of the tools they've created. We're talking about massive, massive scale behavior. That's, it's like predicting the weather. There are so many factors. You can't say Twitter swung the election or Facebook swung the election. That's what makes this so hard is that there aren't easy answers to these questions. Um, And so all we have are questions. I mean, it's definitely important. We know that. But we're never going to be able to say for sure that this specific activity caused this specific outcome. But hope for some sort of regulation should not be completely lost. According to Yakabuchi, the European Union may be providing a blueprint for other jurisdictions, like the U.S., to follow in terms of how to deal with tech giants like Facebook and Twitter and the power they wield. The European Union, the history of World War II is the shadow that overshowed and Germany's influence on this is they're going to tamp down hate speech and they're going to make sure they don't see a rise of the National Socialists, the Nazis again in Germany. And so European law is tailored after German law that says, look, when we see this rising up, we're going to, we're going to stamp it out. And they essentially said to the social media platforms, if you want to work within our area, you've got to tamp down hate speech. So the algorithms that the social media companies use there are simply much more aggressive at finding that information um, and then limiting that information and also countering it. The European Union doesn't have a First Amendment the way the United States has a First Amendment, and nor does almost any other part of the world. 
Absent any sort of meaningful action by U.S. regulators, it seems to be a trial-and-error approach for big tech and social media companies. Balancing responsibility towards free speech with the impact of a platform that has proven it is not beyond political interference or manipulation is a challenging task. And as Mark Zuckerberg knows, the U.S. Congress will be watching. Indeed, the path forward will be interesting to observe. As for what's at stake, that depends on who you ask. Is the best antidote to false claims more free speech, as some have suggested? Nobody seems to know right now. A lot of uncertainty at a time when some say democratic values are most at stake. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Cody Combs. Thanks this week to Dr. Peter Iacobucci and Matthew Ingram for their participation. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. And if you could spare a minute, we'd really appreciate a review. This episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison.